This episode is brought to you by Pure Harvest. My concern was that so many of the intelligent, capable women I knew attributed their achievements wholly to luck. We are socialised as women to play down our achievements. We feel that we will be more likeable, particularly in the workplace, if we make ourselves small. You don't have to spend your life thinking, is this tough enough for me to feel this bad or sad? And if what you're going through is hard for you today, it is hard for you today. No one else gets to tell you that it isn't. Now that I knew fear, I also knew it was not permanent. As powerful as it was, its grip on me would loosen, it would pass. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy and fulfilment along the way. Welcome to December, beautiful people. If you haven't given yourself a little pat on the back for making it through this year, absolutely do it now. You deserve it. (laughs) The Spotify wrapped lists have been coming out again and you guys have blown me away like you did last year. I cannot believe how many minutes some of you have let me be in your ears for. Again, it is such a joy and a privilege to create this show and I couldn't do it without your support. So thank you so, so much. It's been a hell of a year for us all. And something I've reflected on a lot over the past few months is resilience. And who better to join us to explore that further than the wonderful Jamila Rizvi, who not only embodies the concept herself, but has just published Untold Resilience, a collection of 19 awe-inspiring stories of resilient women and the lessons they have for us in navigating this crazy time. It says something about Jamila, though, that my favourite of the story is hers. One that has so many facets, I was actually nervous at this episode, just wanting to make sure that I did her justice. You may know Jamila as an author, presenter and political commentator, or editor-at-large of Future Women and former editor-in-chief at Mamma Mia, but she's also a mother, modern feminist, a new cook and a Harry Potter lover who juggles it all while managing chronic illness and multiple brain surgeries over the past few years. She is in endearingly witty, articulate, painfully intelligent, honest and humble, taking us through her health journey, the work we still need to do on supporting women returning to work after having a child, her changing relationship to success and happiness, and so much more. I hope you are as inspired by her as I am. Lovely Jamila, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I am so delighted to have you here. It's so nice to catch up. It's been so long. I've actually been a little nervous about this one because I Why? just I just want to do you justice. You know, I was reminded when I was doing my research for this one and I've just finished your wonderful new book, Untold Resilience, what an extraordinary human you are and how many wonderful things you're doing. You're one of the few people out there who like to have as many balls in the air at once as I do. There's just so many balls. Oh, no, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think I just get bored very easily. (laughs) Well, that's just a healthy sign of a curious mind. (laughs) So before we kick off, I love to start by asking 
asking guests what the most down-to-earth thing is about them, and particularly for people like yourself, who many of us will have heard of in the media or know of you through your many incredibly impressive titles, there can end up being a bit of a glossy surface to your identity. And I like to strip that back because I think where we're relatable is where we're impactful. So what would you say is something really relatable about you? Oh, like everything. Um, I <laughs> spend most of my life in bed because I have chronic illnesses and disabilities, which means a lot of the time when I look like I'm presenting for work or I am recording a podcast and it all feels very glamorous and important, I am probably in bed. I'm in bed right now. <laughs> I spend a vast amount of my time when not in bed playing Voltron with my son, which is the most <laughs> boring game in the world. And if we're not playing Voltron, we're playing Star Wars. Uh, in which I have been cast as Chewbacca after refusing to play Princess Leia. Wow. Why Chewbacca of all characters? <laughs> Can you do the noises? I'm not very good at them, but I'm working on it. It was more, <laughs> I think initially it was me trying to push back against my kid being like, you have to be the girl character. So I was kind of trying to force him to be more open-minded about who gets to play what. And then suddenly I got stuck with, anyway. <laughs> And this is something already that just jumped out at me about you, that you do seem like you're doing so many different things and living such a busy and full life, but you're also managing on the side a chronic illness and things that get in the way of you actually being able to go at the pace at which you would otherwise like to go. And I found quite similar having had chronic fatigue and and quite crippling anxiety at times. While it's not the same as what you've experienced, I think it does still make some people who might be experiencing similar think that they can't live a life as full or as exciting as you and I might have. But people find balance. You can still learn to manage yourself. And these things don't have to hold you back from living a really wonderful life. And I think you are a really amazing example of that for so many people. I think you. I think it's just about making amendments and recognizing it might not be the life that you wanted it to be and it might not be the life that looks like the life that you see people leading on television or Instagram but Mm. you can make joy within the gaps between the periods where you feel bad and sometimes you can even make joy within the periods where you feel bad I think I've just have to I've had to find ways to live flexibly since becoming a sick person and just acknowledge that The way I used to do things doesn't work anymore, but it doesn't mean I can't still do the things that I love doing. That was a perfect soundbite for this entire show, (laughs) finding joy in the in-between bits because, you know, we won't ever live a life without some form of adversity. And that was what I loved so much about reading your new book, Untold Resilience. Things will never be 100% smooth. They never have been, but that doesn't mean in any way that you can't find joy in between. And speaking of small things that bring joy, I also feel like we are kindred spirits for many other reasons, not least because your bio involves a Harry Potter description, (laughs) which blew my mind. And I also read that part of the whole, you know, humbling experience of finding out you have limits makes you quite discerning about what you will and won't do. And I read that you have very clean but not folded loads of washing, which yeah. I found very interesting. <laughs> interesting distinction. So tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, I'm very good at putting loads of washing on. I'm very good at getting them hung out. And then folding is just uh, beyond me somehow. Um, <laughs> but this year during the pandemic, you know, we are really privileged people and we, my 
a husband and I organized to have a wonderful group of cleaners help us out now and then. But during the pandemic, they weren't allowed in our house, obviously. Oh my gosh. Because <laughs> of that, I suddenly felt the kind of the administrative load at home really shifting back to traditional gender roles, which is, I think, what mm. a lot of women experienced during this pandemic, particularly women who are in uh, relationships with men. And I was like, no, nah, it's not happening. And I kept trying to argue it out with my husband and it wasn't quite working. And (laughs) we have that gap where he goes, I don't see it. I don't notice that it's bad. So I just retired from washing. I just (laughs) one really big task and just went, yeah, I don't do that anymore. It was a painful month the year that I retired, but since then, I'm really into it. <laughs> I love this so much because I get that as well. Nick is so wonderful at, you know, fixing things around the house and all that kind of stuff, but he doesn't see the inside things. And it just so happens that I enjoy the inside things. And then he reverse psychologies me about being better at the inside things. And I don't <laughs> want, you know, I don't want him to do that. But then at the same time, I'm like, but I enjoy the cleaning and I want to do more of the cleaning. So it's just confusing. <laughs> you know, I think we're, we're socialized from when we're kids, I think as women, that we are partly judged and our self-worth is linked to having a beautiful, clean, tidy home. And often with that stuff, you know, yeah, we're better at it. Of course we're better at it because we're being socialised to do it and the expectations are higher on women to do that kind of stuff. In the same way, I think they're higher on men to be good at like that kind of outdoorsy, construction-y, take care of the house sort of stuff. Mm. And for me, that's fine if that's how you want to arrange what you do at home, but... I'm a big fan of pushing back against what society tells me I should be doing and my husband should be doing and finding what we're actually good at and what we actually enjoy and recognising that there are some jobs that nobody enjoys. Nobody (laughs) enjoys cleaning a bathroom. I refuse to accept it if you tell me that you enjoy cleaning the bathroom. No one likes cleaning a toilet, right? If that's your (laughs) skill set, (laughs) then maybe you need to accept it, but you don't take it on because of a gender role. And listeners, this is just a small preview of why Jamila has become such an incredibly impactful voice for young women. You're just so eloquent at articulating your unique brand of feminism in such a way that really helps change people's way of thinking that they don't really take the time to evaluate otherwise. And that's not just in feminism. I think this year in general has done that for a lot of us, interrupting those things that we are we are conditioned to think that do come out of habit rather than choice. And yeah. we got on this autopilot circuit of accepting certain norms. And it's been a really wonderful opportunity to stop and break those cycles and, and think about the way we think about things (laughs) and you do such a wonderful job with future women and your many other projects in helping all of us do that in our lives but one thing I think is particularly in this day and age where anything is possible it can become very overwhelming and the pressure on ourselves to wake up and make the most of what we have now and find our passion and live that dream all the time is enormous and people forget when they meet you that there have been so many chapters that came before the one that we walked in on now where you had no idea where you were going or how to best express yourself or best direct your talent. So how did you find the union between what you love and what you're good at? Take us back to very young Jamila and what your first ideas were of who you thought you wanted to be. Um, I was an extremely enthusiastic child. 
uh, like almost excessively enthusiastic. I wanted to do everything. I wanted to be in everything and I wanted to be involved in whatever was going, whether or not I was good at it or bad at it. I'm also extremely competitive and always have been. So that's been something that's been part of me since I was a little kid. And if you're enthusiastic and competitive, the combination of the two means that you're always doing too much stuff. We are the same person. This is like talking to myself. <laughs> yeah, I graduated year 12. Like I could have graduated twice. I had so many units because I just, I wanted <laughs> to do all the stuff. I, like I didn't want to miss Model UN or Rocker Stedford or the Athletics Carnival or being on the netball team. I just wanted to do all of the things. And I think that stayed with me, both of those things, the competitiveness and the enthusiasm. As a kid, I was a lot less sure of myself and I, I think I had much lower self-esteem in some ways not in all ways but I was probably less confident and less cocky but I just loved being able to throw myself into something as a kid I always wanted to be an actress and then when I was a teenager I wanted to be a director because I realized I wasn't very good at acting <laughs> I think that's kind of code when you're a kid for lacking to be the center of attention right <laughs> Oh my gosh, I am so similar to you. I've always loved all the things, whether or not I'm good at them. That's been no barrier to me whatsoever. Just explore. Let's do all the adventures. And I think that's a wonderful way to explore who you are during your childhood and, you know, actually investigate all your interests and the different sides of your personality. But it also makes it exponentially more difficult to make a decision when you have to choose a pathway and subjects and a degree and, yeah. you know, what's the pathway that allows me to do all the arts and all the drama and all the nerdy stuff and the politics and what's going to unite all those different interests. So it doesn't surprise me in the least that you chose com law at uni. I did arts law probably for very similar reasons. That whole, you know, I don't know what I want to do. I love doing everything. I'm interested in so many different things what's going to leave the most doors open for me what did you go into that degree thinking was that the idea and, and what was your kind of big plan I did have a plan none of the plan came to fruition I really <laughs> wanted to go to NIDA and do their directing course but you can't do that course straight out of school ah. so I was just filling time if I'm honest. And I think like a whole lot of kids, I did law because I got in and there was that kind of expectation of if you got the marks, you had to use them. You didn't want to have any of your marks left over, which is just <laughs> God completely forbid. perverse. But I did law because I wanted to get in. And I originally started out in economics law and made some changes when parts of the economics course were dropped at the ANU. And so I had to switch things up. And they, they discontinued some courses, but I loved economics at school and economics was very related to politics. And my dad had done economics and accounting at uni. And I think I had a sense that that was a good backup. That was a good, sensible decision. Mm -hmm. But I absolutely went to uni planning that I would totally change direction in a few years and I would head off and do a directing course. And that very quickly just completely disappeared from my vision. It became something that I'd loved at school, but never really touched again. That reminds me of that quote about how things often don't work out as planned, but most of the time they work out better. And yeah. another way that we're so similar is I had that same sort of performing arts beginning. I wanted to be a ballerina. I was with the Australian Ballet and then ended up only finishing school because I, I had to have a backup in case, you know, I broke my foot or, or whatever. That's what I wanted to do. And then I got the good marks. I didn't want to have anything left over and then got swept up in the whole corporate world. And, and that was it. So yeah. I love looking at your journey now and seeing that after that 
then came, you know, the, the directing, but then politics soon became a very big thing once you did start uni and you were the youngest, one of the youngest people ever to work as a, a chief of staff to a federal minister. But then you've since ended up in the media, which that's already been three huge jumps in lots of different <laughs> buckets and industries in such a short time. When did the shift away from that big directing dream to a completely different industry happen? How does that change in mindset shift for you? And, and you know, how did you find your way into politics? Well, I think I was interested in drama and television and acting and the stage because it was telling stories and all the rest. And I, you know, a lot of people say politics is essentially television for ugly people. So I think it's a little bit of that. I don't think the departure was as big as it seems, if that makes sense. So I just got swept up at uni the same way I did at school in doing all sorts of stuff. And um, one of the things I became completely caught up in at university was student politics. I was president of my student union and I took that job really seriously. It's a full-time job. You have to live on campus and you spend a lot of time working out at the offices there. You have a team, you have adult staff who, you know, aren't students who are, you know, that is their job, um, who are working for you. And so it just completely encompasses your whole life. And that was the case for me. And at the end of that year, I think I felt like I just couldn't go back to uni. Like I couldn't just, even though I hadn't finished my degrees, I, I didn't feel like I could just go back to being a full-time student after having this experience, which was essentially working full-time and working at a really high level because you get such access to the vice chancellor and the university administration when you have those kinds of roles. So it's an extraordinary experience. And so I ended up working in Kevin Rudd's media office. Um, he was prime minister at the time and I was, you know, the most junior burger of junior burgers. <laughs> and I think from a personal growth and an outlook perspective, that was really good for me because I went from being kind of the top of the tree, if that makes sense, to the very, very bottom. And I needed that. I, I think I was, otherwise I would have come out of uni just being completely insufferable. <laughs> Kevin's office was good, kind of taught me all the things I didn't know. And I had that realization very quickly, I think in that first week of the extraordinary amount that I didn't understand and didn't know about politics. And you know, I spent months and months and months doing work that was boring and repetitive, but I got to be around the most unbelievable decision-making and the most powerful decision-making. I was never involved in it, but <laughs> I got to be there and I got to watch others. And I think that experience has been really useful grounding for me because I got a sense of how different people's minds worked, how they approached different problems, how different people managed both well and very poorly. Mm. And I learned about the difference between politics and policy and the importance of the politics to get you what you want when it came to policy outcomes. So by the time I went into Kate Ellis's office and she was a minister in that government, I had a better grasp on what politics was and who I wanted to be and the kind of boss I wanted to be and the kind of contributor I wanted to be. And I loved working in Kate's office. Like I, I just, it was a really magical period in my life where I had, for a lot of it, I didn't have a partner. I had no children. I had no pets. <laughs> I lived in a house with other political staffers. So we all lived exactly the same life. I remember checking my statements from the parliamentary like office that does flights and stuff and realizing one year I did 227 flights in one year. Like I just wasn't on the ground. I just lived this mad life that I now go, there is never, a, there will never be a point where I can do that again. But at kind of 23, 24, 25, I, I could. And that's a rare 
a rare window where you can just throw everything at a job because it wasn't about money. It was about believing in in that government, believing first in the Rudd government and then in the Gillard government and being so invested in what we were trying to do. I loved reading about your time with Julia Gillard because I was like, otherwise I think you would have been the first female Prime Minister of this country and I still believe that could happen. <laughs> that is ridiculous but very lovely. But I also found it fascinating reading that you've mentioned Kate's job as Minister for Women as a dream job for you. So it was interesting that you moved out of politics, even though you thought that, after having reached such a high level so early in your career. And those shifts... Uh, you know, they're big quantum shifts. Like media and politics are very interrelated, but the nature of the job has changed dramatically from being, you know, in the balls of politics to mamma mia. Yeah. And I think people do really get scared away from quantum leaps like that in their life because of all the expectation that comes with certain jobs, using your intellect in certain ways. And and particularly in Canberra, where you're absolutely surrounded by it, you know, I, I totally understand that. I was about to do an associateship with Chief Justice Keeville at the High Court in Canberra. And to leave that to go into a matcha green tea business was like they were just so different and people all around me found that really jarring. So Mm. how did you make that decision? How did you go from junior burger to rising to the top and then be willing to go back to being a beginner again in a totally new industry? I think I felt like I would always return, certainly at that point. I don't necessarily feel like that anymore, but Mm. I I felt like politics had given me this amazing opportunities early in life, but that I'd never done anything else. And I was really conscious of the people who go from being staff members of politicians to being politicians. And that's all they ever do their whole life. And I believe that the best politicians are those who have lived a life outside of politics and have done different things and experienced different industries and have that broader perspective before they go into politics. So I kind of went, I've got to get out of here and go do something else. Wow. And um, I knew the Gillard government was going to lose. I didn't know it was going to be the Rudd government again before we lost. (laughs) And um, I was conscious there were going to be a thousand odd staffers with the same skill set as me, all unemployed at the same time. And I I didn't want to be in that fight. Mm. And so I started thinking about doing something else, what my skill set was and where I was best placed. And I honestly had the broader sense of sort of media communications being what I felt like I was strongest at. I wanted something where I was writing. And then Lisa Wilkinson tweeted the job at Mamma Mia. And she tweeted that phrase from the Devil Wears Prada that this is the job a thousand girls would die for. And I was like, oh, what's the job? (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like a competition. I like those. (laughs) And and had a a go. I'd met Mia Friedman at the time and I didn't want her to feel uncomfortable if she saw my resume and went oh she's so not right but how do I tell her so (laughs) trying to call her ahead of submitting the application just to be like there are no hard feelings like clearly I have zero experience being a journalist I have no idea about blogs or writing or anything in tech like I've got nothing um, so please don't be offended. And she kept dodging my phone calls because she thought I was trying to pitch a story from government and she didn't want to run a boring <gasps> political story. And, um, so finally I just submitted it and she called about 10 minutes later and she hit, she was like, I had no idea this is why you were ringing me. So I think it was a good lesson in serendipity, but also I'm someone who can get very in my head. And if someone's not returning my phone calls, I will. I'll read into that shit. And I read negative <laughs> into that. I never read positive into that. Oh, no. She must hate me. She doesn't <laughs> want to talk to me. So 
I think for me that was a really good lesson in not reading the negative into the situation and just giving it a crack anyway and really recognizing that when you go for a job outside your skill set and it doesn't come off it just doesn't matter and we all say that of course it matters at the time it hurts at the time but when you take a successful person's resume they don't have the jobs they went for that they didn't get that doesn't go on there that doesn't become part of your story the job you applied for and you missed out on the one that becomes part of your story is the one that you do end up getting and I'm, I'm sure I, I, I remember a couple of them, but I would have applied for a bunch of jobs around that point that weren't quite right or I didn't get the call back or whatever it might be. And it's all right because I kind of remember them now. <laughs> I think we definitely overestimate the significance of certain things in our life. But there's also a big lesson in that for women in particular who do get very crippled by self-doubt. If you don't ask, it's a no. You're guaranteed you're not going to be able to get an opportunity if you don't apply for it. But if you throw something out there, there's such a bigger chance that you might change your life and you give someone else the chance to to take a punt on you. And obviously that's what happened to Mamma Mia. You've since gone on to totally transform your own life but also that whole business. And I think the other thing as well that's amazing about your story is that a lot of people need a circuit breaker to get off what I call the productivity hamster wheel, where we're very gratified by productivity and what's objectively successful. And I think it often takes a bit of a health breakdown or a trauma or something to, to shock people into asking, am I doing the right things for the right reasons? Am I excluding every other life path because I'm just on autopilot or I'm blinded by gratitude? or whatever it might be, I love that you looked ahead and preempted and were very pragmatic about loving politics, but being able to still see that stepping out of that was worthy rather than, you know, being forced out of it and then figuring it out along the way. I think I've always been quite a planned person and I like to have a safety net. Like I'm someone who will take risks at work, but I like to have a safety net at the same time. And I found I thought getting out of politics at that point was a safe and sensible decision. Mm. And I think if the government hadn't been on the nose, I probably would have stuck with it. I probably wouldn't have gone. I don't think I so much got off the hamster wheel as just switched hamster wheels, <laughs> found a new hamster wheel and kept running. And and I, what you said is so, so true. And I admire those people, but I don't think I'm one of them because to be honest, it took, it took having a baby and coming back to work after having him and having a horrible time for me to realize I needed to get off. And so I think I did end up with that, with that jarring sort of event because I was running as fast at Mamma Mia as I was in politics. I wasn't traveling as much, but I was still doing the extraordinary hours and the 16 hour days and working on the weekends. And I look back on that period and I just think, oh, like my second date with my husband, his entire memory is of me being on the phone the whole time. Oh my God. You know I, mean? I would have bailed. <laughs> you were obviously worth it. <laughs> so talk us through that process. Mamma Mia was absolutely transformed under your leadership. You were promoted quickly and unsurprisingly had a huge impact, became editor and editor in chief, wrote a book in the process, not just lucky. I mean, you've just done so many things and we're still only at the very early chapters. Tell us about having a child, becoming a mom, losing your confidence in that return to work and 
I think women, you know, you mentioned self-doubt, imposter syndrome. That's one of the major themes that comes up in every single episode. Post-motherhood, I can only imagine it's a whole new kettle of fish. How has that played out in how things have turned out since then? Yeah, so I... I got pregnant accidentally, so it was a very pleasant (laughs) surprise, but it was certainly not something we were planning for years, like it was well into the future. So I was pregnant when we got married and I remember preparing for the birth. I think I focused more on preparing the workplace to be without me than I did on preparing to have a baby, which in (laughs) retrospect was was a bit naive. I was so focused on leaving Mamma Mia and the team and the structures in place to manage really well without me mm. that I, you know, I worked up until the due date or the day before the due date. And then I'm a very organized person. So I went into labor uh, 15 minutes into my due date and had the baby just before the end of my due date. So did all of it in the 24 hours I was supposed to. Such a high and then I just fell in love with that baby. <laughs> I fell in love with that baby. And I'm, I'm not saying there weren't hard bits. There were horrifically hard bits. Um, in There was a point in those first 10 days when my husband got home from work and I said I'd ruined my life <laughs> and I didn't say it, I yelled it. So there were definitely some really tough bits for me, especially finding my sense of self, I think, as a, as a parent because I'd always got my sense of self and my sustenance from work and suddenly I wasn't working and I was kind of like well who am I if I'm not the editor-in-chief at Mamma Mia like I'm I'm this person at home trying to keep a small person alive and what they don't tell you about those early months of motherhood is you don't get a lot back like Mm. the newborn doesn't give you much and it's not like a six-month-old or a 12-month-old or a four-year-old or a six-year-old who can talk to you and chat to you and tell you you're doing a good job and ask for what they want. You you don't really know if you're doing it right or not and it becomes very monotonous and the days run into each other. I found that hard. Um, I went back to work uh, four days a week when Ruff was about four or five months old, which in retrospect was probably a bit early. Um, <laughs> a bit much. Not for everyone, but for me that was a bit early. And when I went back, and I know a lot of women experience this, they have that that sense of, it just felt like everything had changed. It felt like I didn't have a place in that organization anymore. You know, I, I still had my job in the sense of I still had the same title and I had the same pay, but I didn't feel like I had my job anymore. And I pushed through for a couple of months, mostly because my husband insisted that I push through because he wanted, I think he was really scared I was going to make a snap decision because I'd just returned to work and that any work was going to be hard. And then I was going to quit a job that I loved. Mm-hmm. And I remember he said to me, if you, if you feel the same way every day for six weeks, we bail. And it was really good. It made me, it meant that when I left, I was sure. Yeah. And I was definitely the right call. It was definitely the right call. And it meant that I had the opportunity to write a book and to start writing newspaper columns and do some consulting again and start public speaking professionally. And yeah, it's been, it's, it, it, it's ended up being a huge blessing in, in disguise. But having said that, I think the experience so many women have of that transition back to work being incredibly bumpy of feeling like they're no longer competent, of feeling like they don't belong, of feeling like they're being forced out, of being, you know, all of that. So many women experience it. And the best thing for all of us can't be a new job. So there's something going on with, with businesses and organisations and employers where we're not doing the right thing by women when they return to work. We're not looking after them the way we should be. Yeah, I think we've come a long way, but still have a lot of areas to work on. 
Before we go any further, guys, I've got a little recommendation for you all that's been adding some yay to my days. I'm always on the hunt for healthy ways to fuel the body and mind, especially when I'm punching out these episodes, and I try to look for organic, natural, and plant-based where I can. One of my favorite Aussie businesses, Pure Harvest, have recently introduced their delicious nom oat milks blended with nuts that add so much creamy, satisfying texture to my smoothies or make the perfect addition to the morning cuppa. There's creamy cashew, lush almond, my favorite, or nut bliss, and they're all vegan, free from preservatives, artificial additives, and cane sugar, and importantly, are Aussie made. Pure Harvest also has a wide range of other organic and natural goodies so that when snack time hits, you know you're reaching for something healthy. Pure Harvest products are available at Coles, Woolworths, and local independent stores Australia-wide. Now back to the show. Gosh, I'm just, I'm so fascinated by the level of self-awareness and honesty you have reflecting on those times as well, looking back at each chapter and the decisions that you made. It's so interesting to hear you kind of go through them and what you were thinking at certain times. I was self-aware at the time though. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, this is what I love, that level of reflection with hindsight. So many things become clear, but now, looking back at that time, I mean, the first book that you wrote, the best-selling book, Not Just Lucky, touches on something I think is really interesting, particularly for other women who aspire to become mothers and have a career and explore all the different sides of themselves and get that sense of self pre-children as well, you know, yeah. self-doubt and balancing ambition with likability as women in high-powered roles is also very difficult and I feel like you represent overcoming so many of those things in such a dignified way even though you might not necessarily think it was dignified at the time. (laughs) If it's not just luck, you know, I think we're so incredibly fortunate to be here. There are so many sliding doors moments without which we wouldn't be where we are. And, you know, I was adopted. So I definitely have a keen sense of that, you know, state of affairs. But everything in untold resilience reminds me just how lucky we are to be in this country, let alone with all the privileges that we have. But if it's not just luck that leads us to where we are, what do you think it is that helps people find their place in the world, their right pathway, especially at a time where it's so overwhelming to find what that is? Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think luck contributes to the experiences we have in life. I think privilege contributes in an enormous way the experiences that we have in life. My concern when I wrote Not Just Lucky was that so many of the intelligent, capable women I knew attributed their achievements wholly to luck. Mm. They were in the right place at the right time. Those kinds of phrases that suggest external factors made them successful. Now, external factors contribute to anyone's success. Like, absolutely, I, I, I accept that. But I don't think you find that many blokes saying, yeah, I got lucky. We are socialized as women to play down our achievements because if we think we think that if we speak openly and say, Yeah, yeah, I smashed that. Like I worked really hard and I am good at that. Oh gosh, like it's awful to say it out loud. Like I can't even I even have to say good at that because I can't say what I'm personally good at. I am good <laughs> at writing things. Like 
I feel sick saying that because mm. I feel like everyone looking at me is going to go, mm, she thinks she's all right, doesn't she? <laughs> Women think we are more, we feel that we will be more likable, particularly in the workplace, if we make ourselves small. Mm. And so we try and say that our achievements are the result of external forces rather than internal forces when of course internal forces have something to do with it you 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 don't get a promotion without working hard for it you don't start a business the way you did without separate even to the hard work I think hard work can even be something that we say oh I worked really hard yeah but you were also smart you also had an idea nobody else had you also had the guts to go and try it you also had the smarts to be able to set up a business where you have to go about pulling together so many different things. You did the late nights, you took the risk, you had the brains to make it happen and you had the good sense to push on at times when it would have felt hard. That's not luck. I'm sure there was a little bit of luck in there. Yeah, anything successful has a little bit of luck, but we focus on the luck. We don't focus on all of the other things, I think, as women. So, I mean, for me, if I, if I look at my kind of path there have been huge external circumstances that have dictated it, including having a baby and becoming really sick for a period. Sure. And there's been a lot of really lucky opportunity, you know, that I went into the workforce when labor was in government was a, an amazing opportunity. Um, there's been enormous luck that's helped me along the way, but at the same time, I've also worked really hard before my bum off and I have found what I'm good at and I've stuck with what I'm good at. Mm-hmm. And I think I've been, always willing to give something a go, kind of going back to that enthusiastic kind of character trait I think that I have. I'm always willing to have a go at something. And when I do it, I do it at 100 kilometres an hour flying into the wall if I have to. (laughs) So that leads me to another one that I think is another big topic for women who do wrap their identities up very much in productivity and output is because that has been such a struggle to work hard to get to where you are and then particularly developing a chronic illness, how do you manage the burnout? How do you find a place for yourself to not yeah. necessarily work yourself into a complete crash? And that, yeah. you know, that chronic burnout cycle is something I'm such a victim of and I know all this stuff in my mind, but, I mean, this whole podcast is about separating your productive identity from joy. Can I do it myself? Absolutely not. I'm such a work in progress. And how does that then play in with imposter syndrome and self-doubt of not feeling worthy when you're not being busy and when you're not being editor at large of this and, you know, fulfilling those roles and titles? How have you balanced that? Because your body has forced you to go a little bit slower. And I think that's how I've learned it. I don't think I've learned the lesson. To be honest, I I think I'm still learning the lesson. (laughs) (laughs) No, yeah, me too. That's why I'm asking you for advice. (laughs) I'm there yet. So I became really seriously ill about three years ago and was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And since then I've had two brain surgeries and many, many weeks of daily radiation. And as a result, none of my hormones work, which sounds a bit weird, Mm. but that has extraordinary implications for your metabolism, your wellness, your ability to wake up in the morning, how much water your body holds to your energy, to you, how you build muscle, to all sorts of things. And that has forced me to change, but I haven't done it graciously or gracefully. (laughs) I have changed kicking and screaming and I think I'm only just getting there. We're coming to the end of a year where I've gone into adrenal crisis three times and the doctors have basically said, you've got it. 
recognize you have new limits. And we talk about living without limits. I've got limits and I have to live within them because otherwise I won't be living anymore. So I am definitely learning the hard way. I'm learning through hospital visits and more medicines and a lot of threats from my husband and other people who love me. Um, (laughs) But for me, the one thing that has helped that I think I have learned is I have become a lot better at just telling people how it is. You know, I said at the start of this chat that, you know, I'm doing our chat today from bed. I think there was a period at the start of this year, I would have hidden that. I would have, I would have tried to make it look like it wasn't in bed. I I just wouldn't have told anyone. I ask for help at work. I tell my boss when I need flexibility, I, I will be honest and just say today, my, my guts aren't feeling right or my body's not feeling right or whatever it might be. I'm honest with my Um, because I don't metabolize food properly anymore and because I can't build muscle because I don't have growth hormone. Um, I've put on, and I'm steroid dependent. I put on a huge amount of weight and I find that really difficult um, from a sense of self perspective. I still get a shock when I look in the mirror and I try to hide that away from the world and just eat very little and exercise my butt off Mm. (laughs) and try and get on top of it until I realized that even when I did that, it didn't do anything because your hormones are so important. And I think I tried to hide how much that was hurting me from everyone for a long time. Whereas now I'm trying really hard as uncomfortable as it is to put words around it and just say, this is how I feel. You know, my main memory of the night we met Sarah is of feeling so uncomfortable, so desperately uncomfortable and not wanting people to look at me. Oh, I don't want that to be my memory of meeting someone fun. Like what an awful thing to remember to define that day and I think a lot of women regardless of health implications how we how our bodies how we feel in our bodies and how we feel about our bodies dictates our mood so much completely dictates our mood to the point that me getting on a scale in the morning can decide whether or not I'm going to have a happy day or a sad day like I'm not there yet but I don't want one thing about me to have that kind of power mm. over me. And I think what I am trying to do and I am not there yet is to accept what this body can do and what this body can no longer do and what it does look like and what it's no longer capable of looking like, no matter what I try and what I do and try and find a way where I can like it anyway. And I am 100% not there yet, but that's <laughs> where I'm trying to go. I think your willingness to articulate it as well, particularly because you are so good at words and writing in such a warm, endearingly witty and communicative way that without probably realising it because you don't feel like you're there yet, you're taking so many other women along for the ride and allowing them in their own way to do that. And I mean, I'm the same, you know, the small things can trigger me into a terrible day, particularly if I'm, you know, having a fatigue burnout or a flare up of anxiety. And and I just need the blinkers on all the time until I can kind of like, you know, remember that if you're discerning about what you do, you can still live a really full life. And, you know, we all have limits. Maybe ours are smaller than other people's or than they used to be, but we can also be incredibly productive in a small amount of time. You just have to learn to... To be honest, I, you know, and I I am about to compare my child to a life-threatening disability, but (laughs) I I can see some comparisons between the shock I had when I first had Ruffy of recognizing that I couldn't work the way I used to anymore. And I, I tell you, I tried, I trekked that little baby all over the country, um, (laughs) trying to just work the way I used to work and slowly realizing it wasn't possible that 
I had a new job as a parent and it was a joyful job and it was an unpaid joyful job, but it was still a job that took time and I couldn't work the way I used to work. And it's been similar becoming sick in that I've had to learn that it's just not possible. Mm. That also reminds me of the narratives we tell ourselves and the impact they have. You know, you could tell yourself that you're a sick person and you need to give up on everything, but at the same time as you've had this diagnosis, you've not only moved from editor-in-chief at Mamma Mia, but since taken over the reins at Future Women, becoming editor-at-large of that brand new organisation and yeah. written an incredible book literally since COVID. And I think it's such an amazing reminder that your life is dictated by the way you interpret what happens to you. And you don't have to take on the narrative that others might, that I'm sick, I can't do anything, I can't have a job. You can do it differently and still come to amazing outcomes. So I'm just so inspired by everything you do at Future Women. This book has blown my mind. There are 19 incredible stories, but to add to it, the 20th is your story, which I mean, obviously I've just spent 45 minutes talking about your story before we got to the book, because I think that is a story of untold resilience because many of us do see you emceeing or running the Future Women events without knowing how many other things are going on for you and yeah. you know how many different chapters it took to get you to this point, let alone to write a book about 19 other amazing women. So talk us through this book. I love that you referred to it as when you were looking for a compass of personal fortitude. I think that's exactly what it's become. And the resounding message for me was how, you know, the futility in adversity of saying, why me? And I think that's something wonderful about you too, that you didn't go, why me? Why have I had this life-altering illness you've turned it into something you've kept working you've kept being a mom and you've kept inspiring other women so talk us through the idea for the book and why we all need resilience this year well firstly thank you that was incredibly kind and generous I have a tendency to write the book I wish I'd had just previously (laughs) all my books are essentially solving problems I had a couple of years earlier or in this case at the time So at the beginning of the pandemic, back in March, kind of early April, I really wanted to talk to my nan. My nan died in 2013, but she she lived through the polio pandemic, uh, epidemic and tuberculosis. And she, I remember her stories of being forced to stay home from school and look after her sibling for almost a year because of polio. And they were keeping, they were so scared about kids and polio at that time um, that she had to stay home to stay safe. And Mm. she loved school. And that was an extraordinary punishment um, not to be allowed to go to school. And she was a fierce vaccination advocate as a result. And I just wanted to talk to her about what it was like and how she got through and how she kept herself sane and, sort of have that reminder that this too shall pass. And I couldn't talk to her, obviously. Um, So I went and talked to other people's nans. (laughs) (laughs) Just Um, borrowed a nan for a day. (laughs) 19 of them, in fact. Um, So we went searching for Australian women, uh, many of them not born in Australia, but all of them who consider themselves or uh, Australian citizens now. And we found women mostly in their 80s and 90s and asked them to share the stories of their life with us. And it was the most incredible privilege um, that during those dark early months of the pandemic, I spent hours on the phone to Val and Phoebe and B and Dorothy and 
heard about their life in often quite small snatches because we're talking to women who are quite elderly and often couldn't be on the phone for long periods of time or we're talking about moments of their lives that were horribly traumatic and had to work themselves up to telling those stories. But each of the women in this book are just wise even beyond their rather great years and uh they have they shared really generously and really openly with our community and the result is these beautiful stories which are i think uplifting and life affirming and remind us that this will be something that happens to us it will not be who we are and it will not be the only thing that happens Mm. to us and i'm really proud of this book mostly because i'm proud of the women Oh my God, look at your face. You're sparkly. I always love the point in each episode where we find the thing that makes people's eyes sparkle. I'm like, that is your yay. And I had the exact (laughs) same sparkly feeling when I was reading the book. I can't imagine what it felt like to actually speak to these women. They're so diverse and their experiences are so unimaginable. You know, there are Holocaust stories, the Rwandan genocide. There's just such a breadth of experience that reminded me personally about the strength of the human spirit, the fact that you need so little to create joy, and that in really dark times, people don't lose sight of that joy and that's how they survive. But also the biggest thing for me was that none of the stories were reprimanding of us finding the pandemic hard because it's not as hard as they had it. You know, I found that so interesting because something I've stuck to this whole year and because we are privileged and you do get a guilt complex about still having a job to do or still having a house to live in that idea of telling people they can't be sad because others have it worse is like telling people they can't be happy because others have it better none of those women were like I live through a concentration camp and you should you're just getting a taste of what we have there you know adversity affects us all differently at different times for different people but the takeaways for what resilience you can develop in those scenarios are the same and I think that's so wonderful I think that everyone takes something different from this book but what you've just said is a a really eloquent and lovely description of, of what we wanted people to have which is not that you sit there and go, oh, these women's lives are so bad. See, I'm fine. I've got it good. That's not what we're looking for. That's not what we're trying mm. to create. You know, I, I don't talk about having been sick and the brain surgery. So people go, well, at least I'm not having brain surgery today. So you know, <laughs> my life's good. That's not the purpose of it. I think it's about recognizing that strength and resilience matter regardless of what you're going through. And if what Mm. you're going through is hard for you today, it is hard for you today. Mm. No one else gets to tell you that it isn't. And I think this period of time has been incredibly difficult for a whole lot of people. You know, these last few years, I've watched my husband sit through eight, nine hour brain surgeries, wondering if his wife was going to survive. Mm. I've watched him wonder if he's going to be a single father. I've watched him go through incredible stress and trauma and fear. He still says he found this year the hardest. Wow. Because he didn't so have his ways of coping. He was like, I yeah. couldn't go surfing. Broke his hand in the middle of the pandemic. Don't ask me why. He was skateboarding because he was 38. But anyway, he was skateboarding and he couldn't kind of do his substitute exercise either because he had this broken hand and he he said his that was his mechanism for coping was being out of the house out in nature and active and he was like and that got ripped away from me and then he found it really tough and I think yeah. if you're finding something tough you're finding something tough and you don't have to spend your life thinking is this tough enough for me to feel this bad or sad absolutely and something else I took out of it 
which is also something I've spoken about a few times on the podcast, I truly believe feminism requires male feminists as much as it requires strong female role models. It requires the men to also believe in equal rights for their daughters, their wives, their children, their sisters and, you know, being married to Jeremy and becoming a mum to Ruffy and writing a children's book now, I think it's so wonderful that you're writing for all the generations that are touching your life and men do have such a big role to play. There are so many men in these stories who were progressive in relation to equality years before their time but who made the women their daughters or their wives or, or whatever, you know, the people who they are. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I I try very hard to live my feminism every day. Get wrong a lot. <laughs> I love the Guilty Feminist podcast because I am a guilty feminist who regularly kind of stumbles through and realizes I'm I'm not living as as a feminist in the way I'd wish. But my husband's doing the same and my son's doing the same alongside us. My son wouldn't be able to articulate that, but you know, we're all giving it a crack. Yeah. And I I think one of the things we think particularly around marriage and partnership is that you have a conversation about equality once and therefore you will be equal forever. Yes. You have an equality conversation every day. Every day you slip backwards and forwards in and out of traditional gender roles. And sometimes you might be happy and comfortable with those. Sometimes you might not be, but the only way you know is if you question them, which means that evolving conversation about you know, we're now having the conversation, my little boy's about to go to school next year. Okay, that changes things. We're finishing the day at 3 p.m. We can't pick him up at 6 anymore the way we used to with childcare. You know, <laughs> what does this mean for my work? What does that mean for him? What does that mean for who cooks dinner? What does that mean for who does the drop-off in the morning? It's a constantly evolving conversation and we don't get equality unless we have male and female feminists at the table having those conversations vigilantly. Yeah, and I also think it's taken me a little while particularly when I was a corporate, I found it really difficult to be a feminist and not feel like that meant I needed to be aggressively non-feminine. I thought I needed to be, you know, exhibit masculine kind of more aggressive attitudes and that I needed to lose the softness of our feminine side that, you know, I had to hide. I couldn't be hormonal during my period because that was so unfeminist if I lent on my husband for emotional support. And, I would you know, say it's deeply feminist to be yeah. supported by a partner when you're experiencing pain. Yeah. Do you know what? I just, I think we have this really one-dimensional view sometimes of what is supposed to be more of a multidimensional, substantive, evolving picture of equality. And I think it's about, you know, your podcast is about work and joy I think it's about genuinely finding the balance between the two, that a relationship is work and that a partnership is work and that a family is work and running a household is work and it is also joy. It is also an immense source of joy and recognising where your strengths and weaknesses lie and what your preferences are, your genuine preferences, not what the world has told you you should be Mm. and being able to ask for help and say, I'm not coping, I need you to do this is important. And I think that open dialogue is what makes a relationship stronger, not a relationship where you never fight or you never argue or you never agree, (laughs) but a relationship where you continue to have the conversation even when it's hard. Such good advice. And before we do move on to that joy section, which I should have left much more time for, but I was just so fascinated by everything else, 
What is your take on success and how has that changed over time? Again, I think it's something we get very preoccupied by in our early years and our relationship changes towards success as we become more in tune with other metrics and ways to measure our life. So what's your relationship with success? If you'd asked me this at 25, I would have said success is winning. Yes. And success is being the best. And I think there's still a part of me that believes that because I am deeply competitive, but I think I've moved a long way away from it. And I'm moving ever closer to a place where success is happiness and that a successful life is one where I can say I genuinely had long periods of happiness in my life. And for me now, Success isn't running myself into the ground because that means being in a hospital and success isn't beating myself up about not looking right because that's a waste of time. And success isn't focusing on my career to the exclusion of my beautiful kid and my partner and my friends. Mm. Um, For me, being sick forced me to slow down and showed me the importance of having a community around me and having a network around me of people who love me and support me and who I love and support back. And I don't believe in debts, but if there is a debt, I still owe a lot of them because a lot <laughs> of people have been helping me the last few years and I haven't done a lot of helping. And so for me, success has to look less like being the best and more like being happy And for me, that happiness comes from giving back to those people I love so much. Happiness means having outrageous barbecues where we spend four hours cleaning up afterwards, but it was worth it because gosh, everyone had a great time and sending care packages to my friends during COVID and checking in on the neighbors and spending time with the people I work with because I care about them and I want them to succeed, not just because I want me to succeed. So I am slowly broadening myself to a definition of success, which is a more holistic one. I love that. And I think that competitiveness in a lot of us and in the historical context of feminism to this point has led a lot of us to be quite protective over where we get to and the success that we might you know, achieve. So I love that you mentioned the idea of people around you succeeding as well as yourself and not to the exclusion of each other. You know, I often say success doesn't halve when you share it, it doubles. Oh, agreed, agreed. You know, I always think of a friend of mine, Beck Sparrow, who said once, your real friends are the ones who, when you're on stage getting that award and you look out in the audience, they're the ones smiling the hardest and clapping the hardest. And I want to be that friend. I think I I, I see success less about being on the stage anymore, though I still want to be on the stage sometimes, (laughs) more about being in the audience. You know, I, I am very privileged and have an extraordinary group of friends and colleagues who if I can be useful or helpful in their success, then I will consider that my own success because I've been a contributor and I'll take joy in, in what's happened for them and to them. Amazing. Well, very last section, what is your play TA? How do you unwind from being productive, achieving, editor-in-chief Jamila, and just play or forget what time it is? Do you watch Netflix? Are you a reader? What do you binge on and, you know, how do you just play? I do all of that. Yes. I, I don't think I have a one thing. If I do, it's pr- the things that take prominence for me are playing board games with my son. <gasps> He's just at the age where he's getting the board game thing and he's getting competitive. 
which I love, <laughs> my nurturing. So my husband, my son and I do a lot, have done a lot of board gaming together through COVID because there's nobody else around. Um, it's definitely being with people and entertaining and hosting. I like having people in my house. I like oh. putting on a show. I like cooking for everyone. I like looking after everyone. I like to them to have an extraordinarily good time and I like to do it all again the next day. And I think that that sense of providing for and looking after my mates <laughs> is something that's really important to me. And increasingly cooking has become my new meditation. Ooh. And I think I've been stuck at home a lot the last few years being unwell and also had a lot of people visiting me. So baking and cooking for people who visited became a real obsession. And it's now become almost almost meditative. Somehow. So I see a cookbook coming on somewhere in the future. Oh, no, I'm, not that good. I'm not that good. Second last question. Three interesting things about you that don't normally come up in conversation. Um, okay. So they're properly quirky. <gasps> they're the best so ones. The first one is I have a bone in my nose. Ooh. So uh, my first brain surgery, they went through my nose and my entire septum collapsed after oh my god and it was so bad that I had no not enough cartilage to rebuild it and so they rebuilt my nose with a bone from my rib oh my gosh <gasps> <laughs> um I am a platinum frequent flyer nice who's afraid of flying <gasps> stop it yes how did you do uh, all those flights in that year <laughs> I keep doing it I hate it I don't cope I break down I talk to strangers I hold people's hands I'm not a good flyer, but I keep doing it because. Do you I, clap when the plane lands, though? Please tell me you're not one of those people. I'm not one of those people. Okay, good. <laughs> but I do feel extraordinary <laughs> relief when the plane lands. And then I am a very, very good face painter. Wow, what a skill! My secret skill, which has come into its own since having a <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and very last question, since I love quotes so much, what is your favorite quote? Um, it's a little bit of a dark one, so I hope it's okay. It's um, by Louise Erdrich from The Roundhouse, and it is the quote that got me through the terrifying um, health battles that I had at some points and was the only reason I was able to walk into those surgeries and not just run away screaming. And it is, now that I knew fear, I also knew it was not permanent. As powerful as it was, its grip on me would loosen, it would pass. Oh, what an amazing way to finish. That's so beautiful. And I do think fear is something a lot of us let control us where actually, you know, it's just one of many emotions that are temporary and, and they all pass. Okay. It's beautiful. Thank you so much, Jamila. You are just, I mean, I don't know if you can feel the feels radiating through the computer, but I have so much admiration for you. And I think so many people are quietly being inspired by you and, and everything you do. Oh, right back at you. Thank you for having me. What a woman, huh? <laughs> and I don't think anyone needs another little push to grab a copy of Untold Resilience and her other brilliant pieces of work. If you enjoyed, please do share the episode and tag at Jamila Rizvi and myself. I can't say what joy it brings to know what you guys take away from these chats. And in the spirit of festive giving, if you haven't left a review for us or hit that subscribe button, now is the time to do it. It really, really helps continue to grow the neighborhood and keep bringing you guests that help you seize your yay. We've only got a couple of episodes left this year before a little break. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. So I will be back next week. Hope you guys have a good one. <laughs>